Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who thinks the Yang Gang would look cooler if they all wore sunglasses, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play an interview I just conducted with Andrew Yang, one of the Democrats running for president in 2020. I think there's 20 of them, actually. He's an unusual candidate because, unlike almost everyone else in the race, he's not a current or former elected official. Yang is a former attorney, an entrepreneur, and the founder of the nonprofit organization Venture for America. He's probably best known for the, quote, freedom dividend, his version of universal basic income that would give every American adult $1,000 every month. Like, how many more artists and creatives and entrepreneurs would there be if everyone was getting $1,000 a month. This would be a massive boon to dynamism and growth. And even a conservative model would show that we'd get a lot of the money back. So the headline cost is a lot lower than people think. We can eminently afford it in an economy of 20 trillion plus. This interview was recorded at a Yang campaign fundraising event at Manny's, which is a bar and event space in San Francisco's Mission District. So let's go there now to hear my interview with 2020 presidential candidate Andrew Yang. Andrew, thank you. You know, actually, what's really interesting is, Andrew, I cover Silicon Valley for, for since the beginning of time, and you are considered the candidate of Silicon Valley, and I've never met you. Um, so I think it begs the question is... Uh, Where are, have I been all this time? Yeah, why are, <laughs> why are you the candidate of Silicon Valley? I want to get that away because I know everyone in Silicon Valley. I don't know you. So why are you the candidate of Silicon Valley? Why are you considered that? Or do you consider yourself that? Well, I, I spent the last seven years building an organization called Venture for mm -hmm. America, and uh, we were able to get support from people like Jeff Weiner, who's the CEO of LinkedIn, and other Silicon Valley leaders, Reid Hoffman. Uh, and so I spent uh, between one and three months a year here for the last six or seven years. Mm -hmm. uh, so it wasn't long enough for me to, to, to hit your radar, mm -hmm. uh, Kara. Uh, my parents met as graduate students in, at Berkeley. My brother's named after the Lawrence Observatory. I think that I've got some DNA. <laughs> from, we used to joke that that's where my parents got busy, but I'm sure they did not because they're, 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 they're kind of, they're a little too, too boring for that. Uh, so so I, I certainly feel very at home here yeah. in the Bay Area. And I think a lot of it is that my thinking and the ideas of the campaign are very much of Silicon Valley where I, I first... Uh, became convinced of the need for universal basic income after reading Martin Ford's book. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't. Uh, Martin's actually is uh, like he's a California guy. You probably know Martin. Um, but working in Detroit and Cleveland and Baltimore and St. Louis and New Orleans over the last seven years, I saw firsthand the impact of a lot of the technological uh, innovation on those communities. Uh, but my thinking, I believe, is reminiscent of many of the people. And I'm very proud to say that many Silicon Valley leaders like Sam Altman and Jack Dorsey and others have gotten behind the campaign. So it's become the Internet Silicon Valley campaign over the last number of weeks. Right. And so it's, it's somewhat interesting to be the candidate of Silicon Valley when Silicon Valley is in the crosshairs of the right, the left, every single person on the planet, essentially. Um, how is that affecting you? Because being the candidate of Silicon Valley right now isn't necessarily a great thing right at this moment. And it, it's funny, too, because I feel like I get caricatured in the media a lot as the Asian tech bro. <laughs> 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 and, and part of me is like, I spent seven years running a nonprofit that I started. It's very, very wholesome. Uh, <laughs> 
Um, but but I, I so I do think there's a, a little bit of almost a shortcut taken in terms of my background where when I, I'm in interviewed in the media, a lot of the times it, it seems like, oh, here's like the Silicon Valley candidate. And I agree with you that right now Silicon Valley has gone in record time from can do no wrong at all mm-hmm. to can do no right. Uh, and obviously neither of those actually, things it's, is It's is doing accurate. lots of damage. That's what it is. It's not can do no road. It's actually damaging society. But go ahead. Move no, on. I, I agree with you. that that, that and, and so the pendulum has swung very, very quickly and dramatically. And as always, the truth is somewhere in between mm-hmm. where when everyone was being lionized here in Silicon Valley, there were some excesses and things going on. And uh, even as right now they're being criticized, uh, there is also a lot of good being done. All right. So let's. Start. There's an interesting uh, Nate Silver article that was just about you that I thought was interesting. Um, he's done. This is a quotes about you. Uh, could be what the reason you're doing better than Bill De Blasio, but I think that's a low bar. Um, uh, it could be because he's done such a good job of speaking to the defining aspect of the American psyche, one that both loves and fears tech. That's because the cycles of techno hype and disillusionment are a major part of American culture and public policy. But we're in a cultural moment when our belief in the promises of technology are meeting a crushing reality. Yang's platform might be less than it's calling for cloud seeding or AI social workers and more that it's calling for those things in a time when the relationship between Americans and tech could best be described as it's complicated. So let's talk a little bit about the policies you have, because they are more tech forward uh, than most are thinking about ideas. Let's start first with, well, the Yang gang. Let's, the, the, the concept of the Yang not, gang. Not a policy. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, talk about that, the, your use of it. It's a hashtag Yang Gang. Yes. So we had to come up with a name for our supporters, and Yang Gang organically bubbled up very early and then took on a life of its own uh, when I became cool, I suppose. Um, and so I found myself very grateful that my last name rhymed with Gang, okay. as it turns out. And then when we get asked uh, about our rise, the fact is most cable news programs were ignoring me and the campaign for months. So we went to podcasts, we went to internet media. And so people were like, was that your strategy? And it's like, well, I didn't have much of a choice. It's not mm-hmm. like I was beating off, you know, Chris Hayes and Rachel Maddow with a stick or anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or like, or choosing not to do cable news. It's just I pursued the avenues that were open because I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an operator. I started this campaign as a completely anonymous uh, entrepreneur. Uh, and so the fact that I'm beating my mayor, Bill de Blasio, is actually nothing to, to sneeze at. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rise of the Yang Gang really was an organic phenomenon because we're speaking to the problems that the American people are facing in a different way than most politicians. And we're proposing solutions that would actually improve people's lives on the ground. All right. So let's talk about some of those pol- uh, solutions. The first one is the freedom dividend. This is UBI, which is universal basic income. And you're I think propose $1,000 to everyone over 18 every month, correct? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. All right, so talk about that. Well, the, the freedom dividend is a policy where everyone in a country, in this case, every American citizen, gets $1,000 a month free and clear to do whatever you want. And while this sounds radical to most people listening to this, it's a deeply American idea rooted in our history. Thomas Paine was for it at our founding. Martin Luther King championed it in 1967 and was fighting for it when he was assassinated in 1968. Milton Friedman and a thousand economists endorsed it in the 70s. It passed the U.S. House of Representatives in 1971. And one state has had a dividend in effect for almost 40 years where everyone in Alaska gets between one and $2,000 a year in oil money every year. And they love it. And it's a deeply conservative state. And so what I've been saying to the American people is that technology is the oil of the 21st century and what they're doing for uh, Alaskans, we can do for all Americans. So when, when you push, and there's a lot of people pushing for UBI and trying different things, a lot of companies that are trying to figure out how to do it, that's being tested. What are the challenges to it? Because not to channel Lindsey Graham, but a lot of the people that are against it say communism, like it's giving away free money, it's free... This, the stuff you hear when you, when, you, when you get the pushback on it. What is the case against something like this? Well, the, the great thing is many people who are conservatives and independents and libertarians actually really like the idea mm-hmm. of a freedom dividend, particularly with the word freedom in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it yeah. tests much better with the word freedom. Yes, I really just enjoyed my freedom fries recently, but go ahead. <laughs> Where what I say uh, is, is that it's not socialism, it's capitalism where income doesn't start at zero. Mm-hmm. 
and that everyone having money is very good for business. It's very good for markets. It's very good for individual freedom and autonomy. And these are things that many conservatives embrace. And again, the state that's had this in effect for almost 40 years is a deep red state. It was passed by a Republican governor. So the case against this does not actually come from the right, really. It comes from a mindset of scarcity where people think, well, if we do this for everyone, it will somehow harm us. It will cause rampant inflation. It will cause uh, deterioration in work ethic. Uh, so these are the phantoms that people erect to try and uh, object to universal basic income. And a neuroscientist put it to me best. He said, Andrew, you're going to be fighting the human mind because the human mind is actually programmed for resource scarcity. And when you propose something that suggests relative abundance, uh, there will be something uh, of a reaction to it. And talk about how you're going to pay for this. That's a lot of people getting a lot of money. It's a big number. The way we pay for it, the first thing is that it's much less expensive than people believe. So if you have a rough headline number, you think, oh, it's $3 trillion or so, uh, given the number of adults in this country. But it's actually about half that because we're spending one and a half trillion plus every year on an assortment of welfare and income support programs. And so if you believe that everyone gets $1,000, but if you're already getting $1,000, we're not going to stack this on top, then the headline cost comes down very, very quickly. The headline cost also goes down because when we get this money, what are we going to do with it? We're going to spend it in our communities. It's going to go to tutors and the occasional night out and car repairs. Not car repairs for you guys, because none of you own a, own a car here in this audience. But in other parts of the country, we, we all scootered car here. repairs, right. <laughs> like with, an extra bird helmets. ride. Is bird legal here? I can't remember. So... Uh, <laughs> I can't keep track of what's happening with the scooters. Uh, you can so. smoke marijuana, date a goat, and ride a scooter at the same time here. So, so in this case, that's where some of the money would go. But, um, <laughs> but if you have this money in our hands, you build a trickle-up economy where the money circulates through regional economies over and over again, and we get a lot of that money back. We save money on things like incarceration, homelessness services, emergency room health care by having a stronger, healthier, more productive people. And how many of you all are entrepreneurs? I bet a lot of you. Like, how many more artists and creatives and entrepreneurs would there be if everyone was getting $1,000 a month? This would be a massive boon to dynamism and growth. And, and even a conservative model would show that we'd get a lot of the money back. So the headline cost is a lot lower than people think. We can eminently afford it in an economy of $20 trillion plus. And is there a group of people that don't get it? Does um, Warren Buffett get the $1,000 a month, for example? Uh, Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos also get it, just to remind them that they're Americans. Okay. All right. Um, but, but it is opt-in. You don't force anyone to take it. Uh, right. So, you know, you can't, like, throw the money through their window or something. Like, if someone doesn't, <laughs> if someone doesn't want it, then, you know, they never get it. Yeah, you better not throw it into Jeff Bezos' window. That's not what he, he'd be dead. Um, so when you think about doing this, why is it, why, why do you think there's resistance to it? Because when people do talk about it, it's, people are like, oh, he's for UBI. I'm like, so? But it sounds like you're nuts sometimes when you bring it up to people. Is it, is it such a, how would you get it through to citizens that it's a good idea versus sort of a way out, a far out idea? Well, it's certainly happening through this campaign where we're opening people's eyes and minds to the possibility that we can do this. There's nothing stopping the majority of citizens in a democracy from voting ourselves a dividend. Companies do it every month and everyone applauds. Everyone's like, nice job, Microsoft. Nice job, Verizon. And no one's ever like, what are the shareholders going to do with that money? Are we sure they're going to spend it in a good way? Like, I mean, it's absurd. <laughs> and, where are the owners and shareholders of the society? We can declare ourselves a dividend. I'm running for president to help wake people up to this reality. And as I win this election, when I come into the White House, the Democrats will be so thrilled that I beat Donald Trump. They'll be like, yeah, let's pass a dividend and get more money into the hands of <laughs> families. And then some of the Republicans conservatives will look up and say, wait a minute, this is a massive win for Americans in rural areas and areas that have been left behind by automation. And I don't need 81% of Congress to pass this dividend. I just need 51%. We're going to take a quick break now, but we'll be back after this with 2020 presidential candidate Andrew Yang. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, 
And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Another topic that you talked about a lot with Venture for America is is being in the Rust Belt and these jobs. And the word you're using is robot apocalypse. Now, I kind of get it because I spent a lot of time trying to scare people about AI and robot robotics, automation, and AI are the three things that are coming. And I think, as you might know, that what's happening now What's happening in the future is going to be so much more dramatic. Yeah, it's about to accelerate. To accelerate in a way that's that's bigger. And so it's well beyond having the ability to get on scooters or date on Tinder or take an Uber. What's going to happen next is really quite dramatic. Talk about your vision of that beyond the truck driver is not going to have a truck. It's going to be an autonomous vehicle. Well, in my book, The War on Normal People, I I try to make it as accessible and understandable for anyone reading it. So I talk about the five most common jobs in the U.S. economy. The five most common jobs in the U.S. economy are number one, administrative and clerical work, including call center workers. Number two is retail and cashiers. Three is food service and food prep. Four is truck drivers and transportation. And number five is manufacturing workers. What percentage of American workers do you think fall into one of those five categories? It's almost exactly half. It's 49%. Mm -hmm. So you don't even need to get to AI taking on the jobs of lawyers. I was a miserable attorney for five whole months. I guarantee you can automate that job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but you don't even need to get to AI doing the job of lawyers, accountants, pharmacists, radiologists to see uh, just how disastrous this is going to be for millions of American workers. When you look at 30% of malls closing, driving a truck's the most common job in 29 states. There are two and a half million call center workers making $14 an hour. What do you think the time frame is on us replacing those call center workers with artificial intelligence? I think it's hard to for people to imagine the idea, given right now we're at like the lowest employment, uh, that jobs will disappear really quickly. It reminds me a little bit of the farm to manufacturing shift, um, where it happened over a shorter amount of time, but it did have these profound effects. I was interviewing uh, Mark Andreessen about this, and one of the things he said was, I said, he goes, well, it's like farming to manufacturing. There's so many more jobs in manufacturing, and everything turned out well. And I said, yeah, but what happened to the blacksmith, the family of the blacksmith, and everything else? And he said, well, who cares about that? And so talk about that concept of like what happens to these jobs, because it seems to me, something I always say is that every job, everything that can be digitized will be digitized. Let me say I am completely with you in this camp, Kara, because when I dug into the numbers of what happened even to the manufacturing workers in the Midwest and the South, we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, all the swing states that Donald Trump needed to win, not coincidentally. Uh, And I studied economics, and what did my textbook say would happen to those 4 million manufacturing workers? They would get retrained, reskilled, move for new opportunities, higher productivity jobs, all would go well. How many of you guys learned that in college? All right, so then I found the studies as to what happened to the manufacturing workers in the Midwest after they lost their jobs. In real life, almost half of them left the workforce and never worked again. And of that group, about half filed for disability. And then you saw surges in drug overdoses and suicides in those communities to the point where our life expectancy has now declined for the last three years, society-wide, not just in Ohio. I'm talking about in the United States of America, our life expectancy has declined for three straight years because suicides and drug overdoses have now overtaken vehicle deaths as cause of death. Now, my textbook did not say, hey, you get rid of these manufacturing jobs, they go home, they get drunk, they kill themselves, they vote for Donald Trump. Like, that was not in my textbook. Mm -hmm. 
but that is exactly what has happened. And so when you see what has happened to those workers, I spent seven years in these communities. When you see what happened to those workers, the exact same thing will happen to the mall workers, the call center workers, the truck drivers. And I talk about the truck drivers because they will take this very, very poorly. Uh, you know, you talk about the average trucker, 49-year-old man, high school education, making $46,000 a year. Tens of thousands of them are ex-military. A lot of them own their own trucks. How would you react if you're that person and there's a robot truck that never stops that you cannot compete against? At least some of them are going to react disastrously, catastrophically. And right now you already have in New York City something like 12 taxi and Uber drivers killed themselves last year to, in part because of economic exigencies and circumstances. One did it outside of City Hall just to try and get attention. Got no attention. No one cares. But eventually, you're going to have a critical mass of workers who, who actually externalize their own, uh, the disintegration of their way of life instead of internalizing it. So it's an interesting question. I, I interviewed Pete uh, Buttigieg last week, and he talked about the same thing, that income inequality is going to lead to this kind of behavior and, and dangerous uh, behavior. What do you imagine... You know, and especially as it moves to higher, even higher paying job, especially as it starts to deconstruct different jobs. What Donald Trump then says, hey, I'm going to get all your jobs back, coal miners. But the coal companies are going to hire robots to do that because robots should be doing the coal mining, not people. Coal mining is dangerous. What, where would be, you'd have to propose what the jobs are going to be. Uh, they'd have to be creative. They'd have to be not, nothing that can be automated or digitized. How do you find a way out of that? Because that's where we're going. We are going to automated cars. We're going to everything being digitized. We're getting to jobs that don't need people involved in them. What do you imagine then the jobs are? This is the generational challenge. But one of the core messages of my campaign is that none of this is speculative. This is already happening. When I talked about what happened to these manufacturing workers, if you dig into the labor market statistics, our labor force participation rate, as we're all here together right now, is at 63%, the same levels as Costa Rica and Ecuador and a multi-decade low. And it's being obscured by the headline unemployment rate. If you get discouraged and leave the workforce, you don't count in the headline unemployment rate. Headline unemployment rate also does not include the level of underemployment of recent college graduates, which right now is between 40 and 44%. It doesn't include the people that are doing multiple jobs to survive. The headline unemployment rate is essentially government malpractice. Uh, and it's obscuring all of the rot underneath. And as soon as you flip over, open the rock and you see what's going on underneath, you're like, oh my gosh, like it, it's, it's terrifying. When I was doing research for my book, I had to triple check so many times what the numbers were because I was like, no way that can be right. No way our life expectancy is declining. It is declining. Yeah, it is declining. No way that 40% of American kids are born to a, to a single mother. Uh, no way that... Uh, that this has gone on in our country and that for whatever reason it has not become a national emergency to that level. But that's what I saw over the last seven years running Venture for America. That's what uh, the data shows. And I'm running for president to advance the fact that Donald Trump, he got some of the problems right, but his solutions were garbage and nonsense. It was build a wall, turn the clock back, bring the jobs back. We need to do the opposite of all that. And I'm the man for that job because the opposite of Donald Trump is an Asian man who likes math. <laughs> well, it could also be a Boston woman who likes math. Just saying. No, no. I mean, uh, there's a lot of women who like math. Um, not me, but uh, in any case, um, I can do math. When you're talking about this idea of saving, the, what are the jobs? So what is the actual solution? Because you have to, besides universal basic income, you have to give, where are, from your perspective, where are the jobs going? Obviously, they have to be creative because it's very hard for computers to replicate that. They have to be caring. Like the job of doctors has to change from diagnostics to caring, for example. That's one job. Where do you see the most interesting jobs be, that you can imagine being created? So the first thing I want to do is I want to disabuse us of this retraining myth that's out mm -hmm. there, that somehow we're going to retrain 
coal miners and coders or truckers into logistics specialists. Uh, this is going to sound very politician-y. I was just at a truck stop in Iowa. <laughs> and if you went to those guys and were like, hey, have you had any interest in like this coding. sort of uh, coding career? They'd be more likely to punch you in the face <laughs> than they would be like, oh, I've always been interested in that. Like, let me give you my, my name. It's like, have you come with me? You'll see what I mean. So, so the question is, what are the jobs of the future? Uh, and the answer is that we need to create a human-centered economy that actually is built around our values and what we'd like to do. So if you imagine in America, which we can make happen very quickly, where everyone's getting $12,000 a year, how many people would pursue different forms of work as a result uh, that they've always had some desire to pursue? And it would also recognize caregivers and parents, people like my wife who's at home with our two young boys, one of whom has autism. Right now, the market values her work at zero, GDP values her work at zero, when we know that some of the most challenging and important work that's being done. And that is where the economy has to go. So the way we get to the jobs of the future is we actually redefine our economic measurements around our own health and well-being, our mental health and freedom from substance abuse, how our kids are doing, whether our elderly can retire in quality circumstances. Because if you have a fight for capital efficiency, we lose on an epic scale, on an historic scale. So you're calling human-centered capitalism, correct? Yes. What does that mean? Is that socialism? Or I don't know, I don't know what, what human-centered capitalism means. So right now, the purpose of our economy, broadly speaking, is to maximize GDP, hence, you know, expansion recession, maximize stock market price growth, uh, and then you have this headline unemployment stat thrown in. To the extent you have guideposts for the economy. So what I'm proposing for human-centered capitalism is that record high GDP does us very little good if our life expectancy is going off a cliff. So what if you were to make life expectancy and health your economic output? What if you were to make our happiness and well-being? What if you were to make our childhood success rates? You build a scorecard and say, this is how we measure economic progress. You could have GDP as one measurement, but it's one of 10 measurements, and I would suggest maybe not the most compelling one. And then as president, I would report how we're doing on the more meaningful numbers every year at the State of the Union. I'd be the first president to use a PowerPoint deck at the State of the Union. Uh, because in, in part because right now we're subject to these embarrassing kabuki theater performances, the State of the Union. Like, you know, it's so weird. It's so odd. I feel bad for the members of Congress who are like, do I stand and clap for this? Or do I not? Like, that, right. that's like, what we're, the, in, so we can do better. Um, and a lot of it is by getting the measurements right. Because if you have the wrong measurements, how can you ever make progress? Even the inventor of GDP said this is a terrible measurement for national well-being. <laughs> we should never use it as that. And that was 100 years ago. Like, we haven't got any better since then. Uh, so that's what human-centered capitalism is. And I'm happy to say, Kara, that it's not very difficult. As president, one of my first acts will be to go down the street to the Bureau of Economic Analysis and say GDP, very old, archaic. We have these other indicators. Let's start using them uh, in addition. That part is easy. Then the more interesting part becomes tying corporate and individual actions to progress on these measurements. But imagine a country where if I get some kid off drugs or I help reintegrate an ex-convict into society, that actually counts as economic value, and then I somehow get rewarded for that. That is how we create the jobs of the future. I think that's called the Netherlands, but because um, <laughs> I was just there. Um, you're talking, these are seem very reasonable, but I just checking in to news today, it seems like Washington today is on level batshit crazy. Um, you had a pack of, of the Republicans saying racist things weren't racist. You then had the squad saying, yes, they're racist. It was back and forth. But craziness. It's just absolute. Uh, and it's all taking place on Twitter, which has been weaponized by Donald Trump. How do you expect to stop this? Because it's today, I think, was probably peak someone should stop Twitter immediately. Like someone should turn off Twitter. This is what I felt like today. So there is a pioneer of the internet, Jaron Lanier, mm -hmm. who said that mm -hmm. negative sentiment spreads much more quickly and powerfully yeah. on the internet than positive. And that's one reason why Trump now has been able to weaponize so many things mm -hmm. is that you have these powerful messages that then people feel like they have to be on one side of or the other. Uh, the, the way we change that is by putting someone in the White House who wants nothing to do with these particular uh, first denigrating people who are born in this country and call, saying they should go back to their country. I've been told to go back to my country several times throughout my life. Um, when I was young, it actually was more confusing and hurtful. Now I'm just like, <laughs> like uh, you know, um, I mean, not that it's happened. It hasn't happened like today or anything. I mean, but, um, uh, and so 
the the cultural uh, flashpoints that are happening in DC, most Americans are getting exhausted by them. Well, that's just the want point, to move isn't on it? And solve the problems. Yeah. Well, and, getting and, exhausted and confused is part of the game. Yeah, and, and that's one reason why I'm so thrilled to be running for president is that when I go to the rest of, of the country, and it's not just here, it's in Iowa or Ohio or Pennsylvania, people are like, oh, please, can we talk about something else? Can we actually start trying to solve the problems on the ground? There's a huge appetite for that. Mm -hmm. But what did you make of the, the, of the use of Twitter by Trump? What did you make of the use of that? It seemed like he, I mean, I just tweeted this. He, it seemed like he lost on the census vote. He was accused of rape. He was partying with a pedophile, and they thought racist tweets will do it. We'll switch it around. How do you stop that? Like, what do you what do you, what do you make of it happening over and over and over again in this endless? And it works quite a lot. It works over and over again. Well, I think our media is complicit in this uh, because how did Donald Trump win? The media covered every single thing he did. If he had a rally, it was televised live. He could be called in, all of a sudden they bump everything else and be like, Donald Trump's here. He's going to just call in and, and spout some bullshit that doesn't make any sense. You know, but it's like, oh, but it was, it was like, oh, it was high ratings. And they just went after it. And now that he's president, obviously it's harder to ignore him because he's the president of the United States. And so if he says something, it's, um, you know, uh, controversial, then that, that's newsmaking. But to me, the mainstream media has to start trying to just dismiss and minimize Donald Trump's command of the news cycle. It's going to make it harder for Democrats to defeat him in 2020 if the media will amplify everything he says and does because his cultural avatar then grows as a result and it makes it harder for, for Democrats to beat him uh, when we need to next November. So let's talk about Democrats that you're in. You were just in the debate. Uh, the only one without a tie was that you're still not a geek because you're wearing the blazer. So uh, you're sort of a VC. Sort of. I, I think I think the term Stephen Colbert wa used was business casual tech bro. Uh, you don't have the weird uh, socks feet shoes thing with the toes. So. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I'm and you don't. It doesn't look like you're intermittent fasting. Not that you're overweight. You look great, but you don't. <laughs> You don't look like that you need a sandwich. So w talk about the field right now. You were on stage. You didn't get a lot of words in edgewise. Kamala Harris was sort of, and Biden were kind of dominating it. How do you look at the process of running when you're not as well-known, although you're polling above some very well-known politics? I think you're above Klobuchar. You're above Tulsi Gabbard. You're above de Blasio, Gillibrand. So you're doing very well for someone that wasn't very well-known. But how do you break through, uh, which which is first a large field, secondly, a confusing field and a, and a lot of people. When you have just the debates or whatever, how do you, what's the strategy for doing that? Well, the, the great thing is that the field's about to thin very, very considerably uh, because the DNC has doubled the threshold to qualify for the debates. And I'm happy to say right now, I am one of only eight candidates with over 130,000 donors to be able to qualify for this kind of debate. <laughs> And the truth of it is that of the 20 candidates in this next debate in July, more than half of them have their staff yelling at them, if you don't have some set the world on fire moment, we're all going to quit. <laughs> because your campaign is going to die because you're not going to make any debates, you're not going to raise any money, that's that. And so the dynamic is unfortunately set up for manufactured talking points and drama. Right. Um, but the field is going to shrink a lot. And in the fall, when more and more Americans tune in, and instead of having 20 people on the debate stages, there are only eight or nine of us, then my message is going to get stronger, louder, clearer, and my following is going to grow, in part because a lot of the folks that are attracted to my campaign are not attracted to more established politicians. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them have gravitated towards some of the second-tier candidates. And so as a lot of those candidates, frankly disappear, I'm going mm -hmm. to end up with that support. I'm going to be the alternative to the establishment that grows the whole time, in part because I'm having a very different conversation about the issues that are facing this country. And I'm happy to say when someone joins the Yang Gang, uh, it's hard to leave, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Though if someone does leave, we don't do anything. I mean, there's no like right. weird like gang. Yeah, that, and, that, it's, <laughs> and it's a very, very cheap gang to join. Our, right. our average donation is only $26. Uh, so our fans are even cheaper than Bernie's. Uh, well, how do, you, how do you compare yourself to someone like Bernie, which was a grassroots campaign from the last election? I'm younger, fresher, modern, and more Asian than Bernie. Okay. 
do that for all the candidates. How do you, how do you? <laughs> Kamala Harris. Uh, you know, I, 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 mean, uh, I don't want to oh, go down man. that road with, with Kamala. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Bernie, it's sort of easy, but. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> all right, Biden, Biden. So I will share this with you, and this is uh, something that happened on the debate stage. So we're a commercial break. I'll, I'll get you, let you guys know what it's like to run for president. Right. So you're on the debate stage, and then there's a commercial break, and then you know what we all do? We all run to the side of the stage to get our makeup refreshed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how made for TV this bullshit is. Right. But, so during one of the breaks, me and Joe are uh, next to each other, and then Joe says, no matter what happens, Andrew, you and I need to sit down and talk about the fourth industrial revolution because I am terrified that we're going to gut the middle class. Mm-hmm. And I said, hell yeah, Joe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is, I think, a very, very positive thing that certainly the message is getting through in ways big and small. And just the prior week, I was with Joe in, at an event in South Carolina. That's another thing you might not realize about running for president. But you're with the other candidates in green rooms, in scrums. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that case, it was in a holding pen uh, before a fish fry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so... <laughs> And so uh, you end up getting to know each other personally. I have some of the other candidates' cell phone numbers. Uh, we send each other encouraging messages. <laughs> so, that, so, they're, they're, uh, so there are actual personal dynamics at, at play, and I'm very confident that we're going to mainstream the issues that are important to this campaign so in the days and weeks to come. It sounds like Biden's your friend, right? Your BBFF. Is he your BFF in this group? Uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to put Joe in that position, but I would say that... He seems very, very intent on trying to address some of the same issues that I'm focused on. All right. So let's talk about uh, a few other issues that you're talking about. And then I want to get to the ideas around. Well, actually, let's talk uh, about uh, putting the election on blockchain. Talk about that a little bit and climate change. And something you mentioned, which I think gets taken out of context, the media just loves to do this, is space mirrors. Explain space mirrors. It's not the craziest idea, actually. (laughs) So much to unpack there, Karen. All right. Okay. (laughs) Let's start with, let's talk with climate change. There's not a lot of investment in in Silicon Valley for climate change. They'll spend more time investing in, say, scooters than they will on major issues of climate change. I think only Elon Musk and Bill Gates have significant investments in climate change technology. And I think this is one of the biggest legitimate knocks on Silicon Valley is that the problems that Silicon Valley is focused on solving are market-driven problems. If there is a way that I can make a lot of money uh, then I will put a lot of money behind it. And especially if there's a company that's demonstrated that I can build up a huge valuation trying to solve that problem. But if it's a non-market-driven problem, then it's very hard to get VCs interested because that's not their job in many respects. And so right now, if you look around the problems that we're facing, climate change being the biggest, there's not a market-driven solution right. to climate change. And so if you're a venture capitalist, you're irresponsible if you start trying to plow money into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, And so to me, this is where the government has to lead, try and set the incentives, invest, make it more economically viable for renewable and sustainable sources of energy to actually compete in the market. Yeah, it's interesting. It actually could be a market driven. You know, if you think about it, the idea who I think the next trillionaire is going to be the person who cracks a lot of this climate change stuff or healthcare in that area. Um, I hope so. And they will be a trillionaire. It's going to be something like that. Um, one of the things that I always say, and you feel free to borrow it, like the, the, the stuff that they develop, um, I always it's a joke I always make, which I always say is San Francisco is assisted living for millennials uh, because they the, the stuff they create here is all those kind of products. You're dr- like, you know, laundry or dry or dry cleaner laundry. You you get your Uber to you. You get your scooter right to you. You get your food right to you. It's constant. It's it's all about this, the the problems faced by mostly one, young white men, essentially, like what they need now. And so not a lot gets invested seriously. How do you not force them to do that, but move them towards, say, uh, good uses of blockchain or climate change or the more the more the bigger healthcare that we're facing. Well, I do think that putting economic resources in the hands of every American will end up amping up investment on solving problems for women, on solving problems that are facing underrepresented minorities in this country, because there'll just be more buying power in every community, and so there'll be more entrepreneurs coming out of each community, and then there's going to be more money trying to invest in those opportunities. 
certainly on something on the scale of climate change, you need the government to come in and say, here's a generational problem. We're going to be willing to support very large bets because that trillionaire you're talking about, that trillionaire needs to have a runway, needs to have a set of resources to get their start. And as we know, historically, a lot of those resources for these big problems do come from the government in the best of cases. But I will say right now, it's embarrassing how our government is really nowhere to be seen in terms of the leadership. And you can see this in part where if you look at the sponsors of much, many of the universal basic income trials, it's Sam Altman, it's Chris Hughes, it's private philanthropists. It's yeah. not like the government is going around saying, hey, let's give people money and see what happens. You're not going to believe this, but in the 60s, the government just started giving people money to see what happens. Right. And that, like, when you read about that, you're like, wow, our government actually decided to make bets and, and conduct studies on this to see what would happen. And today we're just waiting for Sam Altman and, and Chris used to report how their data is. That just, just shows how far behind our government it's, is. It's has also the fallen. same thing with space. Uh, it's all being done by Bezos, Musk, Richard um, Branson. So it's all privatization of all the things that government used to do. Do you think government used to jump really heavily back into the idea of this of space investment? and things like that, those big ideas. Well, I think we're past a point, where if you watch these movies like Apollo 13, you grew up with NASA, we're past a point where the government's going to end up employing hundreds and hundreds of scientists and whatnot. A lot of those scientists now work for uh, SpaceX or the other private firms. But the government has to put resources to work to support moves in those directions that private industry might not take on. I talked to someone who's in AI, for example, and they talked about how the biggest private companies might invest billions to support AI research here in California. But then in China, they have a blank check. They have essentially unlimited computing resources provided by the Chinese government. And so then the companies here say, we have a lot of money, but we cannot compete with the Chinese government in terms of money. And so it would make sense to me that the U.S. government would say, well, we have to maintain U.S. competitiveness in this. And this is some place where the government wouldn't be expected to employ all of the researchers or scientists, but the government could write some checks and make sure that we can stay competitive. So let's talk about that idea, because one of the, big, the proposals that's been going around related to tech, and I think we can't avoid, is, is the breakup of big tech. Um, I'm of the side that more competition is better. Breaking things up does create opportunities for others. And when you don't have a government involved in helping seed this stuff, it's up to these big companies to, companies to coalesce around two or three giants. And in this case, uh, it used to be just Microsoft. Now it's th sort of Amazon, Facebook, Google. How do you look at those proposals to break them up? I think there are instances where we should look at having some of these companies divest parts of themselves, where there's been excessive consolidation. And it's also true now that the business plan for many entrepreneurs is just to get acquired. Like it's not trying to build the next business that's going to last for decades. It's like, oh, if we become a big enough threat, then Facebook is going to buy us. And that's bad over time. It's bad for innovation. I will say, though, that the lens that some of the other candidates are taking seem to be 20th century approaches to 21st century problems, where it's not like if we created four mini Googles that would somehow uh, resuscitate the Main Street businesses of Indiana or whether any of us would want to use the fourth best search engine. No one here is binging anything. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and that some of these markets naturally consolidate to one winner. None of us would ever consciously use the fourth best navigation app. It's like, oh, I want to use number four to support them. It's like, of course not. Like, you know, which one's the best with the best <laughs> data and the best traffic? Uh, and so we do need to try and solve these problems. To me, the most human problem that these companies are posing is that the data clearly shows a huge rise in anxiety and depression among teenage girls in particular that's coincident with smartphone adoption and social media use. And this is something that's plaguing families around the country. And so to me, that's something we have to uh, counteract as quickly as possible. And breaking up the ownership of the company may not make that any easier. It might even make it harder. Except that, so there should be just a sink. There hasn't been a search engine created for decades. There hasn't been a social media company since... Snapchat in 2011, and basically it's the product development arm of Facebook at this point because they just love to shoplift Evan Spiegel's ideas. Um, come on. <laughs> 
sorry. It's just, so uh, them staying big, like breaking them up does create opportunity because people would never think of investing in other things. Not the fourth best, but maybe there's a better one. Maybe there's something that can supplant it. So I, I agree with you that the way these markets are set up right now is stifling competition. And I would love to try and unleash more innovation in these spaces. All right. What about other regulation? One of the arguments that I get from besides the constant I'm sorry's and we'll do better next times, um, which we, we have a drinking game at our conference this year and we all were super drunk because every big company came and said, I'm so sorry for destroying democracy, not next time and we'll fix it better next time. But they, But one of the things they say is we need to be big to fight China. We need to be big because I think most people consider Russia sort of just a troublemaking sort of Tony Soprano over here making trouble for everybody. But they do think of China as the big challenge. And so here you have a state-run effort at tech, which is moving global. They're trying to supply all kinds of tech all over the world and Africa and other places. How do you you battle that? Because right now in China, it's a surveillance economy. They accept surveillance in a way that we don't. They do a lot of funding of their companies. There's a very tight uh, relationship between the government and these companies. How do we do that here? The argument from Silicon Valley people recently has been, you got to let us stay big so we can fight China, uh, which is sort of the Xi or me argument, which I don't like either choice. What is, would you say? Well, I think that China certainly has some massive advantages in that, as you're suggesting, they have a much more cavalier attitude towards people's data. And so if you have access to... Cavalier, that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they have total access to... Right. Was yeah. it? And, and the Chinese attitude towards privacy is also very different. So if you have more access to more data, then you can develop AI more quickly. Yeah. Uh, and that's going to be a huge advantage for Chinese companies moving forward. Uh, I'm not sure I buy the, oh, you have to make sure we're huge so that we can uh, compete against China argument in every space. Uh, I do think, though, that there are legitimate instances where the U.S. government can try and balance the scales so that a U.S. company can compete on more even playing ground uh, with China because China, not only is it access to everyone's data at much higher levels, but also their piracy of intellectual property. I was talking to someone who said that there was a Chinese company where each individual employee had access to $10,000 worth of software and that their company in the U.S. could never have afforded all of these licenses and it's going to be very hard to compete with those companies. Uh, and so to the extent that the government needs to try and even the playing field, that's what we should do. Is that the country you're worried about most in terms of competition with the U.S. and innovation? On an economic level and innovation level, yes. We're going to take another break now. We'll be back after this with 2020 presidential candidate Andrew Yang, recorded live in San Francisco. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. So a couple more things, and I want to talk just a few more personal things. We'll get questions from the audience. One of the proposals you made is about data, about it being your personal property. There's all kinds of, there's not a national privacy bill. There's one coming online in California next year. Do you think there needs to be a national privacy bill? And also, what did you mean by it's your personal property? You could sell it? Because you can't sell your liver, right? I mean, you can, but it's on the black market and everything else. Should you be able to sell your data? Is that something that you should be able to give away? It sounds like a Black Mirror episode. Well, I mean, heck, right now, someone else is selling it uh, and profiting from it. And sometimes in the healthcare space, they're selling it, they're reselling it. uh, You know, it can be worth significant amounts of money. And so to me... I'll just share for me personally, most Americans, in my opinion, really, really like convenience. And I am one of those Americans. 
And so when you have some of these weird scroll downs, I'm just like, I think the vast majority of you, I just click yes, I agree, get this out of my way, uh, take my data. <laughs> I hope you don't do anything too terrible with it. I just want to use your service, get in, get out. Uh, and I went to law school. I certainly don't spend my time reading those agreements. Like, who here reads those agreements? Nobody. Uh, if there's somebody here who's like, I read those agreements, they don't want to admit to it. So, um, um, so that's the real-life lived experience of most of us. And I think that that would be acceptable if there were a few things that were happening. Number one, if you do sell and resell my data over and over again and make lots of money or do something that inconveniences me, then I should be, have access to that information and maybe even get a smidgen of the money. And if I decide that I don't like this relationship and I want to be able to uh, anonymize myself, I should be able to do so. And right now, neither of those two things uh, is in effect in the US. We're just hoping for the best. And the companies, now here's the carrot for these companies. Our data with our buy-in is actually significantly more valuable than it is anonymized. And right now, when it's being resold, it's being resold uh, as anonymized data the majority of the time. And so if you actually get my buy-in, my data can actually become more valuable. And if I get a cut, maybe I uh, actually even can share something else about myself that you would find valuable. So there, there's a possibility for a different type of relationship between us our information and the companies that are benefiting from that information. So that's right now. sort of selling your privacy. You, that should be. Uh, I, I have, I've, I've talked about this before. There was an event many years ago where Steve Case was talking about each AOL for customer was worth fifty dollars, and I put up my hand. And I said, "Where's my twenty dollars? Why don't I get twenty from it?" Um, but th then the idea of being able to do it feels a little like selling your liver. Like, sure. This I'm more America. attached to my liver than I am my data. Yeah, I got that. But it's, it still has, <laughs> but it has enormous power. Should we be able to do things maybe we shouldn't be able to do? Well, right now it's happening without our buying, right. uh, without our assent. Uh, and so to me, that's the Wild West that eventually we would want to moderate. A lot of right-wingers, 4chan, some others are very attracted to your campaign. You've decried this. Can you talk about this a little bit? Uh, they like the money giving away. They like a lot of things, but it's often been linked to anti-Semitic tropes, racist tropes. Yes, I, I was mystified and baffled by this when it arose because I was like, "Like, how the hell could you mistake me for someone who'd be down with any kind of white supremacy?" I mean, look at me, uh, <laughs> and I'm the son of an immigrant. Like the the fact that people in those quarters started to uh, be attracted to the campaign was just a total shock. Uh, but as you say, denounced it, want nothing to do with people who have any kind of racist or hateful ideology. Uh, and that's something that I believe people recognize the difference between this campaign and our ideas for the country and a very, very tiny proportion of supporters at one point. So what you just de keep decrying them and because it's there's a lot I was looking at. It, I was sort of shocked by it because it wasn't anything that you it was an interesting, weird. I almost was like, what are you doing? He doesn't like you. Like he doesn't like <laughs> You should have uh, responded to their post. No, I'm not going to go into... <laughs> I, just, I stay out of the Donalds, but go ahead. On Reddit, that's on Reddit. You and me both. Yeah. Um, so last question, I think it sounds like a crazy question, but why do you want to be president? So imagine being the guy who spent six plus years helping create thousands of jobs around the country in Detroit, New Orleans, Cleveland, Baltimore... And realizing that your water was like pouring water into a bathtub that had a giant hole ripped in the bottom. And then Donald Trump wins the election in 2016, and your country does not seem to understand what has happened to it. Your country is scapegoating immigrants for something immigrants have nothing to do with. Your country does not understand that we're in the midst of the greatest economic transformation in our history, the fourth industrial revolution, and we need to get our shit together as fast as possible to make sure this country is strong and whole so that my kids and yours can grow up in a country we're still proud of. So let's say you see all this in 2017, and then you say, how can I get my country to understand what we're facing and advance meaningful solutions in a reasonable time frame before the truckers riot? And then you, you're an entrepreneur, an operator, you make a list, and the list starts and ends with one thing, run for president. And then you look at that and you say, well, if I decided to put my heart and soul into that, do I have a chance to wake my country up? Do I have a chance? And I looked in the mirror and said, yeah, I have a chance. And then you decide not to do that, then you are an asshole. <laughs> and 
That could be. And, and uh, I looked in the mirror and said, all right, like, let's do this thing because I want to be able to sleep at night. I may not win, but I am damn well sure I'm going to make this case to the American people and I'm going to be able to sleep at night knowing that we actually knocked some sense into enough of our fellow citizens so we can start solving the real problems of the 21st century. I think that's interesting. <laughs> The motto, and then you'd be an asshole, is an interesting one. But is there a chance of unseating Donald Trump? His favorables go up. He's more and more outrageous every day, more and more unhinged. It doesn't seem to have any effect. I think there's a great chance of beating Donald Trump in 2020. He had to pull an inside straight uh, to win in 2016, and his support has eroded in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, a lot of the key swing states. And he knows it. He's looking around. He's trying to figure it out. The key variable is who his opponent will be. I think that certain of the people in the field have better chances to beat him than others. I would take anyone in the field over Donald Trump. But one of the reasons why I'm running in particular is that I can peel off many of the people who voted for Donald Trump, conservatives, independents, libertarians, as well as Democrats and progressives in a way that the other candidates cannot. But the data suggests that we have about a 50-50 chance of beating him, depending upon how the economy goes between now and next November. So this is the big question is which side of that 50-50 bet are we going to land on? So last question, I asked this of Pete uh, Buttigieg. If you win, it's going to be a close election no matter what, whoever the Democratic candidate. If a Democratic candidate wins, say it's you, it's very close. You know, there's issues around election fraud and everything else. What if he didn't, if he questions the election, what would you do? Well, I'm glad to say that even people who are closest to him uh, have said there is absolutely no way that we would not honor the outcome of an election. And it's difficult for me to imagine one individual going against the entire <laughs> arrayed institutional force of the U.S. government. Our, our government is not wired to go along with the one crazy person. Uh, wow, and not it seems the, like the it is, but the, go ahead. The, the, the tens Continue. of millions. Uh, and so I'm sure that he would go down, you know, with some kind of strange racist screed, but he would go down. We would have a new president. And if it were me, one of my first acts would be to go to the part of the country that voted for me the least and tell them I'm your president too. All right. On that note, questions from the audience. Okay, questions right here. Hi, my name is Kiri Kim. Um, I work at Blind. It's an anonymous app for that brings transparency to the workplace. And we ran a survey to tech employees um, asking if they thought the artificial intelligence and tech automation was concerning to employment crisis. And we were surprised to find Gotta go that fast, so. okay, <laughs> more than 50% of employees were not concerned. Um, they didn't think it was a problem. So how, as the Silicon Valley candidate, how are you going to convince Silicon Valley and the entire nation that AI and tech automation is a problem? Well, I'm glad to say that recent surveys have shown the majority of Americans have now turned a corner where now most Americans think that technology is going to eliminate many more jobs than it's going to create in the years to come. And the conversation or the survey you ran does not jive with the conversations I've had with people here in Silicon Valley. A rule of thumb I've had is that the more someone knows, the more concerned they are. I have never sat down with someone who's very, very deep into the space and was like, yeah, things will be all right. <laughs> the deeper into the space someone is like, Kara. Kara's very deep into the space and she's I'm very concerned. concerned. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that is much more the norm uh, than the opposite in my experience. Okay. Another question. How about right here? Putting the merits of UBI aside, I want to talk a little bit about your um, pessimism when it comes to AI. And um, obviously there have been instances where you have had mass unemployment because of manufacturing automation. 
Uh, but you've also had instances where uh, new technologies have come in, people have protested, this goes all the way back to the Luddites or back to like the railroads or even telephone operators in the, in the 20s and 30s, 60s, I mean. Um, a lot of times when new technologies have come in, people's jobs have become obsolete, but we haven't seen mass waves of unemployment. You could things like the telephone, I mean, um, um, smartphones. You might have thought that would have caused a lot of unemployment because of a new technology, but it hasn't. So I'm wondering, why are we so pessimistic when it comes to AI that this particular technology change will cause mass waves of unemployment when new technology in the past haven't? So one needn't take my word for it. Uh, MIT, Bain, McKinsey have all done studies. And McKinsey said 20 to 30% of jobs over the next 12 to 15 years. Bain said two to three times the pace of the last industrial revolution. And the last industrial revolution included mass riots that killed dozens of people and caused billions of dollars worth of damage. We instituted universal high school in 1911 as a response to that industrial revolution. And all the experts are saying this is going to be two to th three times faster, more vicious, affect more parts of the economy. I was just with 70 CEOs and I said, how many of you are looking at having AI eliminate back office workers? You know how many hands went up out of 70? All, everyone. 70. And you know at least one of them just was pretending because he wanted to be cool like the other 69. But all 70 hands went up. And so they're, it, it's, they're very, very concerned. You know, what I say is, look, you have 2.5 million call center workers in the United States being $14 an hour, high school educated. Let's say AI wipes out half of them in 10 years. You know, that alone is 1.25 million. And what do you imagine those 1.25 million former call center workers are going to migrate to? And that's an obvious one. There are dozens of inobvious ones that are ripping through the back office functions of many of these companies. So to me, relying upon an historical analog from 120 years ago, if someone walked into an investor's office and said, hey, 120 years ago, buggy whips, they would have been like, what? Like, get out of my office. But in this context, someone busts out a 120-year-old fact pattern is like, farmers, you know, and you're like, come on, like, aren't we better than that at this point? No offense to the question. Right. Okay. Uh, he's right. Okay, two more questions right here. Hi, let's move away from the tech and into uh, your ideas like great. Um, and I, I'm, I am glad that like, you are at least running to bring in new ideas. But, you know, going back to how are you going to try to move these policies forward in a Congress that probably isn't going to flip in the Senate? And then House um, is still kind of like, you know, trying to figure out what's happening even today with the resolution. Right. So how are you going to try to move um, these policies forward when um, it's not just on you? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, look, the squad's fighting Nancy and they're all fighting Trump. And then Kellyanne Conway says something stupid. Like, how do you fix that? You know, well, we, Kellyanne Conway will be gone, presumably, yes. but that's... Which well, is we have a plus. very, very polarized society and government and it's causing gridlock in D.C. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's a disaster. So how do you change it? The way you change it is you end up with a popular wave that ends up transcending political party. You have a person come in who is clearly non-ideological and bipartisan, people feel like they can work with him. And he has a big idea like giving everyone a dividend of $1,000 a month that just is universally popular. Cash is very hard to demonize. If, if you imagine a world, and it's a very real world, where I come into the Oval Office in 2021, everyone's going to know why. It's going to be because I have been pushing this freedom dividend and Americans said, heck yes. And so then I'm in office. Again, the Democrats are super excited about it and say, let's pass some laws. And then all we need is a, a tiny sliver of Republican Congress people to say the dividend's a good idea. It's going to be great for my constituents. And if you imagine them fighting it, can you imagine their offices in Missouri and Kentucky and Alabama as they go home? It's like people be like, why are you fighting the dividend? Like we want the dividend. The dividend's a good idea. Like the, their office is going to be surrounded until they say, you know, the dividend is a pretty good idea. Let's give it a try. And we get that passed. Then we can reverse this mindset of scarcity that has swept the country. It's one reason we're so polarized. If you have a sense that this country is getting dumber, nastier, less reasonable, less optimistic, we are by the numbers because 78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Almost half can't afford an unexpected $400 bill. 
And research has shown that if you can't pay your bills, it has the equivalent of decreasing your functional IQ by 13 points or one standard deviation. So if you can't pay your bills, you're just putting your feet in front of each other. And then if I come say climate change, you're like, I don't care about the penguins, bro. Like, you know, I just got to pay my bills. You know, and, and so that's where most Americans are. We got to get their heads up. You get me in office, we pass the dividend, the scarcity starts to lift, and then we can see what else we can get done. All right. Okay. Uh, last, last question. Uh, sorry, I'm sorry. The guy in the back. Um, hi, thank you. Currently, there are one to two million Muslims in China who are in camps. Um, and I have heard almost nothing about it on the campaign trail. Um, they're re-education to camps. They're taken from their homes. There's, as you talked about, um, surveillance. So I just wanted to know, do we as Americans have any right to say anything about it? And if so, what do we do? And perhaps to link that with the, the Washington Post had a great story about how all your driver's license are, are being are using uh, facial recognition to without your permission. So it's not the same thing, but it's certainly frightening in this country to be have your data used that way. Well, certainly, uh, I believe the United States should be able to advocate for human rights in any part of the world. But right now, that's a much less compelling case because people are looking at us and saying, are you really in position to moralize to us about the way we're treating this particular subgroup of people? So job number one is rebuilding our strength at home so that we can genuinely say, look, we're fulfilling and actualizing our values. And then we'll be much better able to champion oppression of other groups of people in other parts of the world. And that's the goal. Kara, can, yes, can, can I ask a really quick one? Sure. Can your you your, your place is called Manny's. <laughs> no. Can no you Manny. tell us about your socks, Andrew? Oh. Oh, my really? God, Manny. Yeah, I want to sure. know about your socks. Uh, so I'm, I'm wearing some Stars and Stripes socks. They're very patriotic. Uh, and my wife bought them for me Are in Washington, D.C. at the U.S. Capitol. They, oh. They're on. It's like this. You know, I see there's some red, white, and blue. Wow, you're very, very oh. flexible. And so, yeah, uh, I... I did you're, the honestly, you're, just if the you're going to be a Silicon Valley person, your shoes need to be cooler, for sure. <laughs> I have some for you. Thanks, Howard. Uh, anytime. Yeah, I, I, I like I could, the socks. I, I, could, I could use a I'm shoe. Gonna gonna shoe. I'm going to get you some shoes. I'm going to get you some of the newest shoes. Anyway, Andrew, thank you so much. Thank you, Karen. And good it's luck. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you all. Thanks again to Andrew for joining me on stage and to Manny's in San Francisco for hosting us. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them on your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.